Thank you for listening to The Sleepy Bookshelf tonight. You make this show possible. If you'd like to support us, then check out our premium feed, where you'll get ad-free access to the entire catalogue, plus exclusive episodes in between our longer books. There's a link to learn more in the show notes. Good evening. And welcome to the Sleepy Bookshelf, where we put down our worries from the day and pick up a good book. I'm your host, Elizabeth, and I'm so glad you chose to be here tonight. This evening, we're returning to Jane Eyre. But before we do, let's give ourselves a moment to leave the day behind you. Stretch your body let yourself physically let go. Next, breathe deeply and rhythmically in through your nose and out through your mouth. As you inhale, think about how the air feels entering your nostrils. What's the temperature like? What can you smell? Next, become aware of how every time you exhale, you become more and more relaxed. Last time you were here, Mr. Rochester's party had the whole of Thornfield Hall buzzing with activity, day and night. One evening, they began a game of charades. Jane was invited to play, but she politely declined. Instead, she watched the performances and how friendly Mr. Rochester was with Miss Ingram. By this time, Jane felt herself completely in love with her master, and she could not see that Miss Ingram was his equal in anything other than her beauty. She lacked humor and wit that he had in abundance, and she thought that endeared him to Jane. On another occasion, Mr. Rochester had gone to Millcote on business and left the party behind. Soon, a carriage arrived, bringing a new gentleman with it. He seemed foreign from his speaking voice and explained he was an old friend and would await the master's return. His name was Mr. Mason. Shortly after that, a footman entered, claiming that an old fortune teller was in the servants' quarters and wanted to see the ladies for a reading. Miss Ingram was keen, and the lady was brought to the adjoining room, demanding all interviews be in private. Once each of the ladies had returned, the footman said the gypsy had requested Jane's presence. And that is where we pick back up tonight, with Jane about to see the fortune teller for her reading. So just close your eyes and listen to the sound of my voice as I turn to the next pages of Jane Eyre.
Chapter 19 The library looked tranquil enough as I entered it, and the fortune teller, if fortune teller she were, was seated snugly enough in an easy chair at the chimney corner. She had on a red cloak and a black bonnet, or rather a broad-brimmed hat, tied down with a striped handkerchief under her chin. An extinguished candle stood on the table. She was bending over the fire and seemed reading in a little black book, like a prayer book by the light of the blaze. She muttered the words to herself, as most old women do while she read, She did not desist immediately on my entrance. It appeared she wished to finish a paragraph. I stood on the rug and warmed my hands, which were rather cold with sitting at a distance from the drawing room fire. I felt now as composed as I did ever in my life. There was nothing indeed in the woman's appearance to trouble one's calm. She shut her book and slowly looked up. Her hat brim partially shaded her face, yet I could see as she raised it that it was a strange one. Elf locks bristled out from beneath a white band which passed under her chin and came half over her cheeks, or rather jaws. Her eye confronted me at once with a bold and direct gaze. Well, and you want your fortune told, she said in a voice as decided as her glance, as harsh as her features. I don't care about it, mother said I. You may please yourself, but I ought to warn you, I have no faith. It is like your impudence to say so, she replied. I expected it of you. I heard it in your step as you crossed the threshold. Did you? You've a quick ear. I have, and a quick eye, and a quick You need them all in your trade, I observed. I do, especially when I've customers like you to deal with. Why don't you tremble? She asked. I am not calm, I replied. Why don't you turn pale? I am not sick. Why don't you consult? my art. I'm not silly. The old crone snickered a laugh under her bonnet and bandage. She then drew out a short black pipe and lighting it began to smoke. Having indulged a while in this sedative, she raised her bent body took the pipe from her lips, and while gazing steadily at the fire, said very deliberately, 
You are cold. You are sick. And you are silly. Prove it, I rejoined. I will, in a few words. You are cold because you are alone. No contract strikes the fire from you that is in you. You are sick because the best of feelings, the highest and sweetest given to man, keeps far away from you. You are silly because suffer as you may, you will not beckon it to approach, nor will you stir one step to meet it where it waits you. She again put her short black pipe to her lips and renewed her smoking with vigor. You might say all that to almost anyone who you knew lived as a solitary dependent in a great house, said I. I might say it to almost anyone, she replied. But would it be true of almost anyone? In my circumstances, I answered, yes. Just so in your circumstances, but find me another precisely placed as you are. It would be easy to find you thousands. You could scarcely find me one. If you knew it, you are peculiarly situated very near happiness. Yes, within reach of it. The materials are all prepared. There only wants a movement to combine them. Chance laid them somewhat apart. Let them be once approached and bliss results. I don't understand enigmas. I never could guess a riddle in my life, said I. If you wish me to speak more plainly, show me your palm. And I must cross it with silver, I suppose. To be sure, said she. I gave her a shilling. She put it into an old stocking foot which she took out of her pocket, and having tied it round and returned it, She told me to hold out my hand. I did. She approached her face to the palm and poured over it without touching it. It is too fine, said she. I can make nothing of such a hand as that, almost without lines. Besides, what is in a palm destiny is not written there. I believe you, said I. No, she continued. It is in the face, on the forehead, about the eyes, in the lines of the mouth. Kneel and lift up your head. 
Ah, now you are coming to reality, I said as I obeyed her. I shall begin to put some faith in you presently. I knelt within half a yard of her. She stirred the fire so that a ripple of light broke from the disturbed coal. The glare, however, as she sat, only threw her face into deeper shadow. Mine it illumined. I wonder with what feelings you came to me tonight, she said when she had examined me a while. I wonder what thoughts are busy in your heart during all the hours you sit in yonder room with the fine people flitting before you like shapes in a magic lantern, just as little sympathetic communion passing between you and them as if they were really mere shadows of human forms and not the actual substance. I feel tired often, sleepy sometimes, but seldom sad, I answered. Then you have some secret hope to buoy you up and please you with whispers of the future, she asked. Not I. The utmost hope is to save money enough out of my earnings to set up a school someday in a little house rented by myself. A mean nutriment for the spirit to exist on. And sitting in that window seat, you see, I know your habits. You've learned them from the servants. Ah, you think yourself sharp. Well, perhaps I have. To speak truth, I have an acquaintance with one of them, Mrs. Poole. I started to my feet when I heard the name. You have, have you? Thought I. There is diablerie in the business after all, then. Don't be alarmed, continued the strange being. She's a safe hand, is Mrs. Poole. Anyone may repose confidence in her. But, as I was saying, sitting in that window seat, do you think of nothing but your future school? Have you no present interest in any of the company who occupy the sofas and chairs before you? Is there not one face you study, one whose movements you follow with at least curiosity? I like to observe all the faces and all the figures, but do you never single one from the rest, or may it be two? I do frequently when the gestures or looks of a pair seem telling a tale. It amuses me to watch them, 
What tale do you like best to hear? Well, I have not much choice. They generally run on the same theme. Courtship and promise to end in the same catastrophe. Marriage. And do you like that monotonous theme? Positively, I don't care about it, said I. It's nothing to me. Nothing to you, she replied. When a lady, young and full of life and health, charming with beauty and endowed with the gifts of rank and fortune, sits and smiles in the eyes of a gentleman, you. Here she paused. I what? You know, and perhaps think well of. I don't know the gentleman here, I told her. I have scarcely interchanged a syllable with one of them. And as to thinking well of them, I consider some respectable and stately and middle-aged, and others young, dashing, handsome and lively. But certainly they are all at liberty to be the recipients of whose smiles they please, without my feeling disposed to consider the transaction of any moment to me. You don't know the gentleman here. You have not exchanged a syllable with one of them. Will you say that of the master of the house? He is not at home, I replied. A profound remark, a most ingenious quibble. He went to Millcote this morning and will be back here tonight or tomorrow. Does that circumstance exclude him from the list of your acquaintance? Blot him, as it were, out of existence? No, but I can scarcely see what Mr. Rochester has to do with the theme you had introduced. I was talking of ladies smiling in the eyes of gentlemen, and of late. So many smiles have been shed into Mr. Rochester's eyes that they overflow like two cups filled above the brim. Have you never remarked that? Mr. Rochester has a right to enjoy the society of his guests, I rejoined. No question about his right, said she. But have you never observed that of all the tales told here about matrimony, Mr. Rochester has been favoured with the most lively and the most continuous? The eagerness of a listener quickens the tongue of a narrator. I said this rather to myself than to the old woman whose strange talk, voice, manner had by this time wrapped me in a kind of dream. 
one unexpected sentence came from her lips after another till I got involved in a web of mystification and wondered what unseen spirit had been sitting for weeks by my heart, watching its workings and taking record of every pulse. Eagerness of a listener, she repeated. Yeah, Mr. Rochester has sat by the hour, his ear inclined to the fascinating lips that took such delight in their task of communicating. And Mr. Rochester was so willing to receive and looked so grateful for the pastime given him. You have noticed this? Grateful. I cannot remember detecting gratitude in his face. I replied, detecting. You have analyzed then. And what did you detect, if not gratitude? She asked. I said nothing. You have seen love, have you not? And looking forward, you have seen him married and beheld his bride happy? (laughs) Not exactly. Your witch's skill is rather at fault sometimes. What the devil have you seen then? She asked. Never mind, said I. I came here to inquire, not to confess. It is known that Mr. Rochester is to be married. Yes, and the beautiful Miss Ingram. Shortly, I asked. Appearances would warrant that conclusion, and no doubt, though with an audacity that wants chastising out of you, you seem to question it. They will be a superlatively happy pair. He must love such a handsome, noble, witty, accomplished lady. And probably she loves him, or if not his person, at least his purse. I know she considers the Rochester estate eligible to the last degree, though, God pardon me, I told her something on that point about an hour ago which made her look wondrous grave. The corners of her mouth fell half an inch. I would advise her suitor to look out if another comes with a longer or clearer rent roll, he's dished. But mother, I did not come to hear Mr. Rochester's fortune. I came to hear my own, and you have told me nothing of it. Your fortune is yet doubtful, 
said she. When I examined your face, one trait contradicted another. Chance has meted you a measure of happiness, that I know. I knew it before I came here this evening. She has laid it carefully on one side for you. I saw her do it. It depends on yourself to stretch out your hand and take it up. But whether you will do so is the problem I study. Kneel again on the rug. Don't keep me long, said I. The fire scorches me. I knelt. She did not stoop towards me, but only gazed, leaning back in her chair. She began muttering. The flame flickers in the eye. The eye shines like dew. It looks soft and full of feeling. Smiles at my jargon. It is susceptible. Impression follows impression through its clear sphere. Where it ceases to smile, it is sad. An unconscious lassitude weighs on the lid that signifies melancholy resulting from loneliness. It turns from me. It will not suffer further scrutiny. It seems to deny by a mocking glance the truth of the discoveries I have already made to disown the charge of both sensibility and chagrin. Its pride and reserve only confirm me in my opinion. The eye is favorable. As to the mouth, it delights in times of laughter. It is disposed to impart all that the brain conceives though I dare say it would be silent on much the heart experiences. Mobile and flexible, it was never intended to be compressed in the internal silence of solitude. It is a mouth which should speak much and smile often and have human affection for its interlope. That feature, too, is propitious. I see no enemy to a fortunate issue but in the brow, and that brow professes to say, I can live alone if self-respect and circumstances require me to do so. I need not sell my soul to Bibleists. I have an inward treasure born with me which can keep me alive if extraneous delights should be withheld or offered only at a price I cannot afford to give. The forehead declares, reason sits firm 
and holds the reins, and she will not let the feelings burst away and hurry her to wild chasms. The passions may rage furiously, like true heathens as they are, and the desires may imagine all sorts of vain things, but judgment shall still have the last word in every argument, and the casting vote in every decision. Strong wind, earthquake, shock, and fire may pass by, but I shall follow the guiding of that still small voice, which interprets the dictates of conscience. Well said, forehead. Your declaration shall be respected. I have formed my plans, right plans I deem them, and in them I have attended to the claims of conscience, the counsels of reason. I know how soon youth would fade and bloom perish if, in the cup of bliss offered, but one dreg of shame or one flavor of remorse were detected. And I do not want sacrifice, sorrow, disillusion such as not my taste. I wish to foster, not to blight, to earn gratitude, not to wring tears of blood, no, nor of pride. My harvest must be in smiles, in endearments, in sweetness. That will do. I think I rave in a kind of exquisite delirium. I should wish now to protract this moment ad infinitum, but I dare not. So far I have governed myself thoroughly. I have acted as I inwardly swore I would act, but further might try me beyond my strength. Rise, Miss Eyre, leave me. The play is played out. Where was I? Did I wake or sleep? Had I been dreaming? Did I dream still? The old woman's voice had changed. Her accent, her gesture and all were familiar to me as my own face in a glass, as the speech of my own tongue. I got up, but did not go. I looked. I stirred the fire and I looked again, but she drew her bonnet and bandage closer about her face and again beckoned me to depart. The flame illuminated her hand, stretched out, roused now and on the alert for discoveries, I at once noticed that hand. It was no more the withered limb of elder than my own. It was a rounded, supple member with smooth fingers 
symmetrically turned. A broad ring flashed on the little finger, and stooping forward I looked at it and saw a gem I had seen hundreds of times before. Again, I looked at the face, which was no longer turned from me. On the contrary, the bonnet was doffed, the bandage displaced, the head advanced. Well, Jane, do you know me? Asked the familiar voice. Only take off the red cloak, sir, I replied. But the string is in a knot. Help me. Break it, sir. There, there, then. Off ye lendings. And Mr. Rochester stepped out of his disguise. Now, sir, what a strange idea, said I. But well carried out, eh? Don't you think so? With the ladies, you must have managed well, I answered. But not with you, he asked. You did not act the character of a fortune teller with me. What character did I act? My own? No, I replied. Some unaccountable one. In short, I believe you have been trying to draw me out or in. You have been talking nonsense to make me talk nonsense. It is scarcely fair, sir. Do you forgive me, Jane? He asked. I cannot tell till I have thought it all over. If on reflection I find I have fallen into no great absurdity, I shall try to forgive you. But it was not right. Oh, you've been very correct, very careful, very sensible. I reflected and thought on the whole I had. It was a comfort, but indeed I had been on my guard almost from the beginning of the interview. Something of masquerade I suspected. I knew fortune tellers did not express themselves as this seeming old woman had expressed herself. Besides, I had noted her feigned voice her anxiety to conceal her features. But my mind had been running on Grace Paul, that living enigma, that mystery of mysteries, as I considered her. I had never thought of Mr. Rochester. Well, said he, what are you musing about? What does that grave smile signify? Wonder and self-congratulation, sir. I have your permission to retire now, I suppose. No, stay a moment. Tell me what the people in the drawing room yonder are doing. Discussing the fortune teller, I dare say. Sit down. Let me hear what they say about me. I had better not stay long, sir. It must be near eleven o'clock. Oh, are you aware, Mr. Rochester, that a stranger has arrived here since you left this morning? Stranger? No. Who can it be? 
I expected no one. Is he gone? No. He said he had known you long, and that he could take the liberty of installing himself here till you returned. The devil he did. Did he give his name? His name is Mason, sir. He comes from the West Indies, from Spanish town in Jamaica, I think. Mr. Rochester was standing near me. He had taken my hand as if to lead me to a chair. As I spoke, he gave my wrist a convulsive grip. The smile on his lips froze. Apparently a spasm caught his breath. Mason, the West Indies, he said in the tone one might fancy a speaking automaton to announce its single words. Mason, the West Indies, he reiterated, and he went over the syllables three times, growing in the intervals of speaking whiter than ashes. He hardly seemed to know what he was doing. Do you feel ill, sir? I inquired. Jane, I've got a blow. I've got a blow, Jane. He staggered. Oh, lean on me, sir. Jane, you offered me your shoulder once before. Let me have it now. Yes, sir, yes. And my arm... He sat down and made me sit beside him. Holding my hand in both his own, he chafed it, gazing on me at the same time with the most troubled and dreary look. My little friend, said he, I wish I were in a quiet island with only you and trouble and danger and hideous recollections removed from me. Can I help you, sir? I'd give my life to serve you. Jane, if aid is wanted, I'll seek it your hands, I promise you that. Thank you, sir. Tell me what to do. I'll try at least to do it. Fetch me now, Jane, a glass of wine from the dining room. They will be at supper there. And tell me if Mason is with them and what he is doing. I went. I found all the party in the dining room at supper, as Mr. Rochester had said. They were not seated at table. The supper was arranged on the sideboard. Each had taken what he chose, and they stood about here and there in groups, their plates and glasses in their hands. Everyone seemed in high glee. Laughter and conversation were general and animated. Mr. Mason stood near the fire, talking to Colonel and Mrs. Dent, and appeared as merry as any of them. I filled a wine glass. I saw Miss Ingram watch me frowningly as I did so. She thought I was taking a liberty, I dare say, and I returned to the library. Mr. Rochester's extreme pallor had disappeared, and he looked once more firm and stern. He took the glass from my hand. Here is to your health, ministrant spirit, 
he said. He swallowed the contents and returned it to me. What are they doing, Jane? Laughing and talking, sir. They don't look grave, mysterious, as if they had heard something strange. Not at all. They are full of jests and gaiety. Mason? He was laughing too, for all these people came in body and spat at me. What would you do, Jane? Turn them out of the room, sir, if I could. He half smiled. But if I were to go to them, and they only looked at me coldly and whispered sneeringly amongst each other, and then dropped off and left me one by one, what then? Would you go with them? I rather think not, sir. I should have more pleasure in staying with you. To comfort me? Yes, sir. To comfort you as well as I could. And if they laid you under a ban for adhering to me, I probably should know nothing about their ban. And if I did, I should care nothing about it. Then you could dare censure for my sake. I could dare it for the sake of any friend who deserved my adherence, as you, I am sure, do. Go back into the room. Step quietly up to Mason and whisper in his ear that Mr. Rochester is come and wishes to see him. Show him in here and then leave me. Yes, sir. I did his behest. The company all stared at me as I passed straight among them. I sought Mr. Mason, delivered the message, and preceded him from the room. I ushered him into the library, and then I went upstairs. At a late hour, after I had been in bed some time, I heard the visitors repair to their chambers. I distinguished Mr. Rochester's voice and heard him say, This way, Mason, this is your room. He spoke cheerfully. The happy tones set my heart at ease. I was soon asleep. Chapter 20 I had forgotten to draw my curtain, which I usually did and also to let down my window blind. The consequence was that when the moon, which was full and bright for the night was fine, came into her course to that space in the sky opposite my casement and looked in at me through the unveiled panes, her glorious gaze roused me. Awakening in the dead of night, I opened my eyes on her disc, silver white and crystal clear. It was beautiful, but too solemn. I half rose and stretched my arm to draw the curtain. Good God, what a cry. The night, its silence. Its rest was rent in twain by a sharp, a shrilly sound that ran from end to end of Thornfield Hall. 
my pulse stopped. My heart stood still. My stretched arm was paralyzed. The cry died and was not renewed. Indeed, whatever being guttered, that fearful shriek could not soon repeat it. Not the widest winged condor on the Andes could, twice in succession, send out such a yell from the cloud shrouding his eerie. The thing delivering such utterance must rest ere it could repeat the effort. It came out of the third story, for it passed overhead, and overhead, yes, in the room just above my chamber ceiling, I now heard a struggle. A deadly one, it seemed, from the noise, and half-smothered voice shouted, Help! 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 Three times, rapidly. Will no one come? It cried. And then, while the staggering and stamping went on wildly, I distinguished through plank and plaster, Rochester, Rochester, for God's sake, come. A chamber door opened. Someone ran or rushed along the gallery. Another step stamped on the flooring above, and something fell, and there was silence. I had put on some clothes, though horror shook all my limbs. I issued from my apartment. The sleepers were all aroused. Terrified murmurs sounded in every room. Door after door unclosed. One looked out, and another looked out. The gallery filled. Gentlemen and ladies alike had acquitted their beds, but for the moonlight they would have been in complete darkness. They ran to and fro. They crowded together. Some sobbed. Some stumbled. The confusion was inextricable. Where the devil is Rochester? Asked Colonel Dent. I cannot find him in his bed. Here, was shouted in return. Be composed, all of you. I'm coming and the door at the end of the gallery opened, and Mr. Rochester advanced with a candle. He had just descended from the upper story. One of the ladies ran to him directly. She seized his arm. It was Miss Ingram. What awful event has taken place, said she. Speak. Let us know the worst at once. But don't pull me down or strangle me, he replied, for the Misses Ashton were clinging about him now, and the two dowagers in vast white wrappers were bearing down on him like ships in full sail. All right, said he. It's a mere rehearsal of much ado about nothing, ladies. Keep off, or I shall wax dangerous. And dangerous he looked. His black eyes darted sparks, 
Calming himself by effort, he added, A servant has had a nightmare, that is all. She's an excitable, nervous person. She construed her dream into an apparition or something of that sort, no doubt, that has taken a fit with fright. Now then, I must see you all back into your rooms. Till the house is settled, she cannot be looked after. Gentlemen, have the goodness to set the ladies the example. Miss Ingram, I'm sure you will not fail in evincing superiority to idle terrors. Amy and Louisa, return to your nests like a pair of doves, as you are, madame. To the dowagers, you will take cold to a dead certainty if you stay in this chill gallery any longer. And so, by dint of alternate coaxing and commanding, he contrived to get them all once more enclosed in their separate dormitories. I did not wait to be ordered back to mine, but retreated unnoticed, as unnoticed I had left it. Not, however, to go to bed. On the contrary, I began and dressed myself carefully. The sounds I had heard after the scream and the words that had been uttered had probably been heard only by me for they had proceeded from the room above mine. But they assured me that it was not a servant's dream which had struck this horror through the house, and that the explanation Mr. Rochester had given was merely an invention framed to pacify his guests. I dressed, then, to be ready for emergencies. When dressed... I sat a long time by the window, looking out over the silent grounds and silvered fields, and I waited, for I knew not what. It seemed to me that some event must follow the strange cry, struggle, and call. No, stillness returned. Each murmur and movement ceased gradually, and in about an hour, Thornfield Hall was again as hushed as a desert. It seemed that sleep and night had resumed their empire. Meantime, the moon declined. She was about to set, not liking to sit in the cold and darkness I thought I would lie down on my bed, dressed as I was. I left the window and moved with little noise across the carpet. As I stooped to take off my shoes, a cautious hand tapped low at the door. Am I wanted? I asked. Are you up? Asked the voice expected to hear. My master's. Yes, sir. And dress? Yes. Come out then. Quietly. I obeyed. Mr. Rochester stood in the gallery, holding a light. I want you, he said. Come this way. Take your time and make no noise. My slippers were thin 
I could walk the matted floor as softly as a cat. He glided up the gallery and up the stairs and stopped in the dark, low corridor of the fateful third story. I had followed and stood at his side. Have you a sponge in your room? He asked in a whisper. Yes, sir. Have you any salts? Volatile salts? Yes. Go back and fetch both. I returned, sought the sponge on the washstand, the salts in my drawer, and once more retraced my steps. He still waited. He held a key in his hand. Approaching one of the small black doors, he put it in the log. He paused and addressed me again. You don't turn sick at the sight of blood. I think I shall not. I have never been tried yet. I felt a thrill while I answered him, but no coldness, no faintness. Just give me your hand, he said. It will not do to risk a fainting fit. I put my fingers into his. Warm and steady, was his remark. He turned the key and opened the door. I saw a room I remembered to have seen before, the day Mrs. Fairfax showed me over the house. It was hung with tapestry, but the tapestry was now looped up in one part, and there was a door apparent which had been concealed. This door was open. A light shone out of the room within. I heard then a snarling, snatching sound, almost like a dog quarreling. Mr. Rochester, putting down his candle, said to me, Wait a minute. And he went forward to the inner apartment. A shout of laughter greeted his entrance, noisy at first, terminating in Grace Poole's own goblin laugh. She then was there. He made some sort of arrangement without speaking, though I heard a low voice address him. Mr. Rochester came out and closed the door behind him. Here, Jane, he said. And I walked around to the other side of a large bed, which, with its drawn curtains, concealed a considerable portion of the chamber. An easy chair was near the bedhead. A man sat in it, dressed with the exception of his coat. He was still, his head leant back, his eyes were closed. Mr. Rochester held the candle over him, I recognized in his pale and seemingly lifeless face a stranger, Mason. I saw too that his linen on one side and one arm was almost soaked in blood. Hold the candle, said Mr. Rochester, and I took it. He fetched a basin of water from the washstand. Hold that, said he. I obeyed. He took the sponge, 
dipped in it and moistened the corpse-like face. He asked for my smelling bottle and applied it to the nostrils. Mr. Mason shortly unclosed his eyes. He groaned. Mr. Rochester opened the shirt of the wounded man, whose arm and shoulder were bandaged. He sponged away the blood, trickling fast down. Is there any immediate danger? murmured Mr. Mason. No, a mere scratch, said Mr. Rochester. Don't be so overcome, man. Bear up. I'll fetch a surgeon for you now, myself. You'll be able to be removed by morning, I hope. Jane, he continued. Sir, I shall have to leave you in this room with this gentleman for an hour, or perhaps two hours. You will sponge the blood, as I do, when it returns. If he feels faint, you will put the glass of water on that stand to his lips and your salts to his nose. You will not speak to him on any pretext, and, Richard, it will be the peril of your life if you speak to her. Open your lips, agitate yourself, and I'll not answer for the consequences. Again, the poor man groaned. He looked as if he dared not move. Fear either of death or of something else appeared almost to paralyze him. Mr. Rochester put the now bloody sponge into my hand and I proceeded to use it as he had done. He watched me a second then, saying, Remember, no conversation. He left the room. I experienced a strange feeling as the key grated in the lock and the sound of his retracting step ceased to be heard. <laughs>